Hello everyone, I am Thomas Morino. I am a director in the digital practice at Alex Partners. Thank you very much for tuning in today for the very first episode of our series, which we've called Startup Sessions. This is a series in which we will interview leaders of born digital businesses, and we will try to understand what difficult decisions they've had to make in their growth journey, why they made those decisions, and how ultimately they ended up contributing to their success. I am joined today by my colleague, partner, and managing director, Clive De Silva. And to kick us off in our first episode, we have the great pleasure of welcoming Andre Symes. Andre is the CEO of Genesis Technology, a fast-growing insurtech company. Welcome, Andre. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, Thomas, for having me. So perhaps to kick off our conversation, would you be kind enough to give our audience a brief introduction of yourself and also of Genesis? Sure, no problem. As Andre Symes, I've been with Genesis Technologies now going on 12 years. Genesis is a end-to-end policy and claims administration platform that focuses on creating ecosystems for the insurance industry. Uh, I originally joined when we were rather small. We were about 20 people back in 2011. And uh, we were focused predominantly that time on serving the South African markets. In around about 2018, became apparent that there was a real big requirement, a need for agile technology in the insurance industry in the United Kingdom. As such, we started exploring the markets here. And uh, to be honest, the markets were a lot more receptive to the technology that we had to offer than we anticipated. And this resulted in me moving across here permanently only six months later. And I've been a resident of London now for the last five years. And uh, can you also tell us a little bit about your time before Genesis and the kind of experiences you had which made uh, an impact once you actually joined uh, this business? So I've, I've been a, tech, uh, in a, a, a techie my entire life. Starting when I was five years old, um, our, uh, my father bought me a Q basic programming book and I started writing code uh, and I wrote my first program, I think when I was about six, very basic stuff, and really fell in love with technology. Um, but straight out of college, I joined various startups, always looking at tech. We built networks and we built home automation systems. Um, but the lessons learned wasn't the technology. It was about how to scale businesses from startup through to scale up. And I've been through three or four of those uh, before my time at Genesis. Great. Well, that's interesting. So look, I mean, if you think about Genesis as a business, at what growth stage was the business when you first joined? And what were the key indicators that you saw that made you categorize it in that way? So, for example, think about incubate, expand, scale, sustain, and extend. So we never set out to actually build a, a, a venture originally. We, we started Genesis in 1998 um, as a software development house to build. And we were, we were, we were um, uh, contracted to build a system for an Italian insurance company. Um, so we were actually a dev house. Um, about 18 months into the program, a large organization out of the UK came and acquired this Italian insurance company. Um, and we were stuck with a bunch of code and no customer because the, the group company pushed down their existing platforms. So we quickly pivoted to becoming a product business and to start selling that into the markets. At that point in time, we were 100% uh, owner managed. And quite honestly, we sold just to anybody and everybody that was willing to buy the platform so that we could actually put kids through school. It was, it was really a necessity angle. And the first three people that bought the platform very quickly was a broker, an insurer, and an MGA. 
So we quickly had to build out the capability for all three of those simply to serve the market immediately. We then actually ran the company for a very long time as a self-funded, slow-growth organization. We remained self-funded until early 2021 when we did our first raise with Frog Capital. When I joined originally, um, the markets in South Africa started really picking up on the cool technology that we built. We had architected some very interesting concepts for that for those days into our product, being customer-centric, you know, being multi-tenanted, multi-language, multi-currency. These things were unheard of in those days. That really gave us a leg up. And then in 2011, as Steve and Craig Willifield, Craig's our group CTO and co-founder, phoned me up and said, Andre, we're starting to hit um, scalability issues. We've now built a small business and customers are getting bigger. Aon, as an example, signed on as a brokerage at the time. And the, th the two other largest brokers in South Africa signed on. We need to start building in scalable resilience, operational resilience into the organization. Will you please come across and help us with that? When we did that, we started growing a little bit quicker, but again, still maintained slow growth, self-funded, um, no sales department. Um, and then when we started looking for, for investment, we were sitting at around about 80 people. We had grown from 20 people to 80 people in my first tenure. Um, and now recently we've got up to about 140 FTEs in growth. Wow. I mean, and I think you've probably partially answered the next question, which is where do you say, where would you say you are now? And what are the biggest challenges to overcome, you know, that you had to overcome in getting there? It's an interesting one. And I think it's one of the, one of the more unique challenges that Genesis faced. In, in previous businesses and in a lot of other startups, you start the business with the idea of growing quickly. You know, you have your business plan, you go and raise capital, and then you start building out and, and executing your business plan. We were a going concern, you know, growing, growing slowly but stably. The single biggest challenge we had was changing that momentum into a scale-up. So to change the trajectory from 10, 15% year-on-year growth to 100% year-on-year growth three years in a row, that's quite a challenge because you already had the cultures of, you know, how to do things slowly, properly. You know, there wasn't really the pressures from, you know, shareholder supremacy, et cetera, on the business. So our single biggest challenge was changing the velocity of growth and not starting from zero and then growing at a predetermined rate. Can I just maybe uh, perhaps uh, expand upon that? So clearly part of growth involves thinking about new markets. And you mentioned, of course, uh, Europe and sort of being in London now. Perhaps just talk us through how, you know, for, for people who are listening to this as well, what would you... What advice would you give to them as they're thinking about expanding beyond their initial market? You know, what are the things to think about, watch out for, and how do you pen penetrate sort of beyond your initial, you know, kindergarten, if you like, you know, where you were growing up? No, absolutely. I think that a mistake that lots of people make is they look at the data from the various insurance markets across the world and they go, okay, well, this is a trillion dollar market. Let's go to the US. Not understanding the cultural differences. The, the localizations that you have to do, the integrations from a platform point of view. So the, the, the reason why we picked to come to the UK was that we actually had a customer year sort of by accident from 2005. And through them, we had learned the lessons about how do you integrate into Lloyd's, how do you do Lloyd board rowing, et cetera, how do you deal with um, you know, the complexities of the UK markets. And it was, it was a relatively obvious step for us. Number one, it's a similar time zone to South Africa. You know, so our operational support team didn't have much trouble supporting the customers in the UK. And number two, many of the insurance companies that we dealt with in South Africa had placed business in the UK or were at least co-insured or reinsured via the UK. So we had customers that were willing to offer, offer us routes into the UK. 
um, help open doors and obviously also vouch for us, you know, saying that we've done a really good job with their business in South Africa. Have a look at these, these new people coming into the markets. So I think the lesson learned there is that don't bite off more than you can chew. Go, go to where could potentially be the easiest entry for a new market. Entering a new market is really difficult. I remember being at a conference about you know, a year into our expansion, and I spoke to some other vendors that were there with their stands at a, at, a, at a trade show. And they'd been trying to penetrate the UK market for two years and hadn't acquired a single customer, several of them. You know, breaking into a new market is really, really difficult. Breaking into a new market and a self-funded model is even harder. So we were bootstrapped. Yeah, you know, we were very, very conscious of our spend. We were very careful about where we spent our expansion capital in, 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 in that area. So I think that the, the trick is, is not to be dazzled by the trillion dollar markets. Rather go to the one that's across the, the, the easiest step to make. Learn those lessons, get pattern recognition, how to break into new markets and then replicate that for the bigger ones once you've built up that kind of resilience. And so it's interesting. It sounds like you were sort of in the incubate mode for effectively a long time, kind of getting lessons and feedback from the market and what you were doing before you can really develop and grow. And obviously, you've gone from strength to strength. Now you're 25 years old as a company. Um, what are the, the things that you think you, you the decisions you've made that where, where you really got it right? And perhaps is there something in there about the type of customers you you already had? So you mentioned a broker, an MG and an insurance firm. They will all have slightly different types of requirements. Um, and therefore, if you spend the, the right amount of time developing a good offer for all three types of businesses, then, you know, at some point that must have had some payback for you. It, it certainly made the platform more sellable. In other words, there was a bigger market for us to access when we came to the UK. So again, in, in the UK, we have insurers, brokers, scheme brokers, and NGAs on, on the platform. It doesn't come with its, with, uh, uh, you know, it's not all, all, all roses and sunshine. You know, when you start playing in, in various sectors, you also have a multitude of competitors, people that are really good at building MGA platforms, people that are really good at building insurer platforms, and obviously there are incredibly good broker platforms in the markets here too. So you have to fend off a lot of people and answer a lot of tough questions. Um, and it's also quite difficult carving out an identity for yourself. You know, what are you? You, know, you, can't, you can't just be the be-all and end-all for everybody. You know, no, no one believes that, even though you can potentially, potentially do that. So, so kind of have to pick your partners carefully. And because we were always owner-managed, we had the luxury of being more selective with the people who we partnered with. So we declined a lot of RFPs originally because we knew that this wasn't going to be a good fit for us. And the last thing we want to do is engage in a multi-year relationship with a customer who we can't serve well. Um, you know, that's the, the, the quickest way of ruining your reputation in the market. So we were selective about who we dealt with. Um, you know, we were politely declined, you know, particularly, you know, um, you know, some of the retail broking RFPs that we got into. That's not the space we want to play in. Um, but, you know, you, 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 we were very fortunate to be in a position to be able to do that. So we, we, we took the decision to have a controlled growth path through selective customers rather than just acquiring customers for the sake of value creation. That's interesting. And, you know, going back to this, the concept of high quality service and the fact that you've had customers that have been your advocate when you're going to new markets, presumably you've had to think about um, the features that you deliver to them. You know, ultimately you've got a platform which has got you know, key features which are common to probably most clients and then you'll have some which are specific to individuals. So when you think about your roadmap, 
how do you balance the needs of building a common core platform for everyone versus uh, a specific requirement from one of your key clients? And sort of where do you put that dev effort? That's a fantastic question. And the answer to that has changed in the last few years. In the early days, you would have to go and build out every single piece of the core platform yourself. You know, it's your proprietary your, your IP and your, and your tech. And we've done that. So we arrived here with a relatively comprehensive product. It was quite, it was quite surprising for us, to be honest. You know? So the markets that we came from, people expected your system to be able to do quote and buy digitally, do full policy administration, have portals for your customers and or your agents, and be able to handle claims, handle reinsurance, handle co-insurance, and have data warehousing. So when, when we started talking to customers in other markets, they were like, no, no, we, we run multiple platforms. It was, it was quite a shock to us. We were like, no, but isn't the standard just you have a single, single neck to throttle? Um, but you're right. The way that we've, we've, we, we approach it now is that as the markets are becoming more refined and we see the insurtech players coming better at certain points within the policy lifecycle, the answer there is, is connectivity. So before the, the real big uptake of APIs, you had to do bespoke integrations or bespoke builds, which made it, made it very cumbersome. You know, we've now invested the majority of our R&D opening up our, our platform via APIs. We have 700 plus endpoints now. And it's simply, the answer now is we don't know what customers are going to want in the next few years, but we will be able to accommodate that particular requirement via the open architecture of the APIs. So the, the answer there is, Hyperconnectivity, APIs have driven down the cost of integration drastically. You have awesome low-code tooling where you can now integrate payment gateways into a platform in a matter of hours rather than a matter of months when we used to have to hard-code it. So the answer now is that bring us the, bring us the solution that you want. We have a bunch of pre-integrated solution providers in an ecosystem. We can cobble those together. And that, that overall ecosystem solution is going to be your solution for your best practice in your business. I think that's a very so that's a very interesting point. A because obviously for MGAs they will always want to differentiate and offer something that's going to be different from either a traditional insurance carrier, of course, but other MGAs as well. So they will have products and offerings that are different. But even main carriers they will want to differentiate. And I think some of the core platforms that we see in the market, you know, they all try and emulate and go in the same kind of direction. And therefore, the question for insurers is, well, how do you become different? You're going to about to change your core platform, invest probably tens of millions into doing that. And then does that bring you on par or does that make you different from your competitors? Some might go, well, actually, we're going to differentiate on supply chain or on customer experience on, you know, the variety is there for the, for the taking. What are the things that you see, you see are the, the key differentiators that, you can offer through the, the platform that you have and the kind of key scenarios that you've seen being successful in the market? Talking to the MGA market that, that, that you raised there, you, you know, we've seen this explosion of MGAs over the last few years in the market. And this is really exciting. This means that there are carriers that are taking uh, you know, bespoke knowledge and, and, and speciality business rather seriously, which is good to hear. The challenges that those companies often face is that, number one, a lot of the people that run those MGAs have broken away from large carriers. So they are used to having a good, solid, robust backend system. So that's that's it. They have to be able to have that. But the NGAs don't always have the budget that the large carriers do. So you have to offer them optionality. You have to be able to say to them, look, 
to get your NGA off the ground, here's effectively an NGA in the box solution. It has an out-the-box quote and buy-in journey that can be bespoke somewhat. It has, it has off-the-shelf off portals for your customers to engage with, but all the boring backend stuff is taken care of by a robust platform. Then as that MGA scales and starts requiring to differentiate itself, you can. That's the beauty of having an API ecosystem is that you can even take our, our, our off-the-shelf front-end quote and bind uh, um, module, decouple it, build your own, and then you can own that customer journey yourself, reusing the exact same APIs. So the answer there is to be able to offer them optionality so that you can serve them all along their growth path. And as their business grows and they start launching new products, breaking into new markets, et cetera, the answer is optionality is, is the key at the moment. Thanks, Andre. And clearly, having strong leadership across your journey has been really important. Now, if you think about your leadership team more broadly, uh, what have been the key characteristics that have redefined the organization and the key decisions that they've had to make over the last few years? The one thing that we've learned is that leadership needs to always have the core values of the business at heart and always have that up front. So at Genesis, you know, what we care about is having the best product and delivering as best as we can to the markets. Um, you know, it's very easy for the leadership to get quickly distracted by growth of the business and then not focus on your product. You have to be product obsessed. You have to make sure that your product is really, really good. If it isn't, you know, the business is not going to be able to last very long. Having said that, you know, Craig, myself, took over the leadership of the business from our original founder, Steve, about two and a half years ago now. Um, and he recognized that there was a new era for Genesis and that, you know, that we needed to get some new energy into the markets or in, into the business. So that's why we handed over leadership, we went and raised capital. And then recently we've appointed a couple of really, really senior executives on the team. We did some power hires. Bart Patrick has joined us. Ian Peter, of course, joined us as our CFO. And it has absolutely transformed the business. You know, being, being self-funded, bootstrap, pay yourself, you know, as little as you can to make sure that the business makes some money. To uh, no, we, we were skeptical of this idea of appointing strong leadership, but oh my goodness, it has completely transformed how much we can now look at things like Horizon, what's happening down the markets. We can do, you know, Horizon 3 investments, seriously focus on disruptive innovation in our innovation and product development house in Cape Town. Um, leadership is, is, is really important and you have to invest in it. Thank you, Andre. That's very interesting. Um, now, just a final few quick-fire questions before we close off our discussion today. Looking ahead, what do you think will be the most disrupting factors for your industry in the current climate? I, I think the disruption is going to come from outside of the markets. So not big tech players coming into the market and disrupting it, but rather unintended consequences by big tech players. You know, we have this real big drive at the moment to things like risk mitigation. Now, you know, if we have really good, robust self-drive cars, you know, that's going to really disrupt the motor insurance industry. If we can predict and, 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 and mitigate risks on a commercial level, you start changing the requirement for, for what the insurance should look like. So I think the biggest disruption is going to be effectively big tech companies nullifying the need for insurance in certain spaces. Interesting. Um, second quick question. What advice would you give to somebody who wants to uh, start on that on that startup journey. Don't be distracted by big multiples that we saw in the last few years. Don't start the business for the sake of value creation. Start a business. Don't start a venture. You have to have a route to profitability. If you can't walk on your own two feet, you know, as we saw now in the last couple of couple of quarters, 
as capitals become more expensive, as we see banks collapse, you have to be able to run your business on your operating income. That's very good. Thank you. Um, and finally, the harder one, perhaps, can you try and make a prediction of something you think will happen in the next 12 months? I get asked this question every year, and every year the markets move a lot slower than we thought it was going to. The only prediction that I see this year is that people are going to start taking this idea of optionality more seriously. Um, we saw that starting during COVID when people were, were kind of restrained by the technology during the lockdown periods. Um, a lot of the executives that we speak to our customers went, my goodness, if only we had the option to launch new products, we would be in a much better position. So this, this idea about we don't know what's happening, but we need to be able to future-proof our system against that is certainly bubbling up. So I think digital transformation is going to take a backseat. Optionality ecosystem and even multi-pass ecosystems is going to be what we see talked about this year. On this note, I'd like to thank you for your time, Andre, and for giving us your insight in the world of InsureTech. I think you're sending us to a great start for this series. So thank you very much. And it's been a great pleasure meeting you. And to all listening, thank you for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll be able to join us for the next Alex Partners Startup Session. Goodbye and have a great day.